It's Friday, May 4th, and this is The Daily Dive. President Trump continues to have legal troubles. This time, one of his lawyers might be at fault again. Former mayor of New York City, Rudy Giuliani, who now serves on the president's legal team, did a series of interviews on Fox News and shed some new light on the Stormy Daniels case. He acknowledged that the president did repay Michael Cohen for the $130,000 he paid to the porn star. What's more, Giuliani seemed to indicate that the payment was made out of fear of what it would do to the campaign. We will speak to political reporter Daniel Lipman for more on this. Has your dog ever suffered from separation anxiety or displayed aggressive behavior? Have you ever thought about giving them doggy antidepressants? We will speak to Dr. Nathaniel Morris from Stanford School of Medicine about giving your dog medication that might help take the edge off. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. That money was not campaign money. Sorry, I'm giving you a fact now that you don't know. It's not campaign money. No campaign finance violation. So, so they, they funneled it through the law firm. Funneled through the law firm and the president repaid it. Oh, I didn't know he did. Joining us now is Daniel Lippman. He's a reporter for Politico and co-author of the Politico Playbook. Michael Cohen continues to be a thorn in the side of the president, but now Rudy Giuliani might have complicated things a bit further after a couple of interviews he did with Sean Hannity and Fox and Friends. What did Rudy Giuliani say? He basically confirmed that Trump had reimbursed Cohen for the hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal settlements, basically to silence women, including Stormy Daniels, from going public. Cohen had taken out a home equity loan to pay for some of these settlements, and he always denied that Trump had reimbursed him. Or he didn't, he didn't deny it, but he basically would not confirm it. And uh, Trump said he had no knowledge of these settlements. And so it kind of looked like the White House was misleading the public for the last few months about whether Trump was involved. Right. And we learned that it wasn't just the $130,000 paid to Stormy Daniels. It was much more than that, right? Yeah, it's in the uh, $450,000 plus range in terms of actual reimbursements. And Trump would reimburse Cohen $35,000 a month. But I think the biggest issue is he didn't disclose that he had paid himself or you know used his own funds in the effort to silence these women. And that constitutes a campaign finance violation if you don't disclose how much money you're putting into the campaign. And this is an in-kind contribution. And so the FEC, the Federal Election Commission, will be looking into this, as well as Robert Mueller, as to exactly what's going on here. Right. And Rudy Giuliani said that this was, on Fox and Friends, he said that how bad it would have looked if this came out right before the debates and right before the election. Imagine if that came out on October 15th, 2016, sure. in the way. middle of the you know, last debate with Hillary right. Clinton. So to make it yeah. go away, they, they made this Cohen payment. didn't even ask. Uh, Cohen, didn't, Cohen made it go away. He did his job. So that is what everybody's focusing on, signaling this is why it impacted that campaign. This is why it amounts to some type of campaign contribution. And Trump denied that. He said it was not related at all to the campaign. So it looks like they have conflicting stories, which is not a surprise with Trump. He, he contradicts himself often within a few minutes of talking. And so his advisors, including Rudy Giuliani, they 
are trying to defend a person that often changes his mind. And so this is an issue that continues to dog Trump. And I don't know how long Rudy Giuliani will stay as his lawyer. He said that he doesn't expect to be fired, but if he gets fired, you know, he gets fired. Right. I think he said uh, it's happened before. It doesn't it's bother him one like bit. like a million legal teams. Right. A lot of people are saying, you know, this was a big flub by Rudy Giuliani, but it seems like this was something that was planned. He said he spoke to the president about this a few days ago. Yeah, he did. Uh, he said, like, you know, about uh, less than a week ago. But it didn't seem like the White House really knew exactly what was what Rudy was going to say. And so that is tough because they weren't able to prepare. Everyone was surprised that he was even on Sean Hannity. And so that is something that continues to plague the administration where the legal team won't coordinate with the communications team. And you see this big blow up when uh, maybe Trump knew by, you know, a couple of days ago that Rudy was going to say this, but uh, he might not have understood the importance of this. While this all looks really bad in the grand scheme of things, how damaging is it? I mean, it's a violation of campaign finance laws. Isn't that usually met with just a few fines? I mean, this is definitely doesn't reach to impeachable offenses or anything. That, that's true. And, but there's a lot of other stuff that Robert Mueller is looking into. And so if this is the only thing that they could get Trump on, then he'll be fine. But they have a lot of questions for him, as the New York Times revealed with the list of almost 60 questions. So this is just one part of it. So uh, even if he didn't do anything illegal more than this uh, campaign finance violation, there's still a lot of other stuff that they could get Trump on, like obstruction of justice. Yeah, a lot of legal analysts are saying that this Rudy Giuliani thing definitely tripped up the president even more, put him in some more legal trouble. The president, but do you know the president didn't know about this? Uh, I believe that's I, what He didn't Michael know about said. the specifics of it, as far as I know. But he did know about the general arrangement that Michael would take care of things like this, like I take care of things like this for my clients. But some are even saying, you know, he can still maintain that he didn't know about the payments at the time, and he's just reimbursing his lawyer, which, you know, he has to pay him anyways because he was holding him on retainer. So it's still kind of in, in that limbo. A lot of people don't know what to make of it yet. Hey, you're totally right. And it's hard to know if Trump paid it after whether he knew about it at the time. Cohen may not have actually told Trump in real time, I'm going to pay off this and that. He might have just tried to deal with all of, uh, you know, just tried to deal with these women who Trump had had affairs with kind of on a case-by-case basis. And another part where everybody's going to hang on still, uh, Giuliani did say that Trump was kind of familiar with what the arrangement was going to be. So what does that mean is is what everybody's going to be looking into? Hard to know exactly, but I think when he talks about that, it's like kind of the arrangement where Michael Cohen takes care of all of Trump's legal messes and... (laughs) And I'll cover you later. And cleans them up, but doesn't Trump does not is not informed in real time about every single one. Right. We also learned that federal investigators had wiretapped the phone lines of Michael Cohen. Uh, do you know anything about that? Yeah. So that uh, that was a report from NBC News, and some of those wiretaps might have included calls between Cohen and the White House. And so that will probably get Trump mad because they captured a White House call. But um, there's no indication think, if it was a staffer or if it was the president himself on that call. We don't. 
We don't know, and I think that just indicates that the prosecutors and Robert Mueller or whoever was wiretapping those calls were just doing their jobs. If they suspected criminal activity on behalf of Cohen, it's only logical to get a warrant sometimes, and the judge has to approve it. It's not like they can just do it willy-nilly. Right, and it was done in the days leading up to the raids on Cohen's offices and, and his home. Yeah, so they, presumably you'd have such a wiretap to make sure that he wasn't destroying evidence at the same time. Do we know anything about where we stand on the attorney-client privilege related to uh, Michael Cohen and, and Donald Trump? We don't know much about the status of that. I think a judge has to do rule on whether that will stand. And I think they, they were talking about appointing a special master to deal with these types of issues. But they haven't really decided on who that would be and what's going to happen. So we're kind of in a waiting game. Daniel Littman, reporter for Politico and co-author of the Politico Playbook. Thank you very much for joining us today. Hachi digs at the floor and he digs at the door. He bites the molding. And this is really all in an effort to get out of the apartment. Joining us now is Dr. Nathaniel Morris. He's a resident physician in psychiatry at the Stanford School of Medicine. So you wrote a piece for the Washington Post called Does Your Pooch Really Need Prozac? And uh, you start off with a funny antidote treating people for depression. You say, I don't I don't know what can help, but maybe this medication might help. And the patient says, well, hey, my dog takes that very same pill. Can you tell us about that? What, what, how often do you run into something like this? Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting trend. I feel like that I, I've noticed over. You know, I'm, so I'm a second year resident in psychiatry, and as I've been, you know, working with patients, and um, you know, not all patients need medication when they're getting treatment for mental health issues, but sometimes, you know, an antidepressant or something like that can be helpful. And yeah, it, it's kind of a strange situation when you're saying, hey, um, Prozac or you know, some other medicine might might be helpful for your anxiety or your depression, and, and the person says that their dog is taking the same medication, and so I. I remember that happened a few times, and I was thinking that's kind of an interesting uh, dynamic and trying, you know, being interested in thinking maybe I should look into this a little bit more. Is it usually antidepressants or any other types of uh, medication? The only times I've ever had it happen is talking about antidepressants. But uh, when I was reading up before writing this article, it seems like there's a pretty huge of medications that people may use with their their animals. You know, sometimes antidepressants, sometimes anti-anxiety drugs like benzodiazepines, so things people might have heard of like Xanax or Ativan. But then I think, as I also put in the article, I even found one website that was saying um, Risperidone, which is a type of antipsychotic that we often use to treat people with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. And so it's a pretty... Uh, interesting interplay where a lot of these medications that have you know, traditionally been designed for use in humans seem to be finding uses in animals as well. Right. And I mean, these seem like pretty aggressive medications for little animals. So that's what I think is a really interesting angle in terms of, you know, pets taking these medications is when I first started looking into it, a lot of actually what spurred my interest was I have a family member who's in veterinary medicine and had kind of explained what happens with aggressive pets in in the hospital and how they treat them. So I kind of also looked into that as well. But a lot of the articles and things that are covering pets getting psychiatric medications all say like, look at this, this is crazy. Look at these aggressive medications. This is, you know, overuse. And so when I first looked up some of the statistics, it seemed to suggest that, you know, possibly millions of American pets are taking 
taking these medications, right, or even potentially taking anxiety drugs or even antipsychotics, that, that would be the natural conclusion is, oh, my God, how, how are so many pets taking these meds, right? But I think talking with a few more people in the field, like, you know, one person I spoke with was Dr. Carlos Siracusa from Penn Vet, and, you know, he, he had a really, what I thought was a thoughtful take on it, which was, you know, animals, as we're learning more and more, having what appear to be, you know, very similar mental health issues that people might have, whether it be, you know, anxiety or compulsive behaviors. And so some studies have shown pretty good evidence that some of these medications can help them. And so the question is, how do we manage those, you know, behaviors? And, you know, is it to alleviate the suffering of the animal? Is it just so that the owner doesn't have to deal with the behavior? Um, and in the past, as he was mentioning, a lot of people are just buying, you know, shock collars and things that aren't regulated off the internet, right? And just like electrocuting animals, so they don't bark and stuff. If you go to a vet who, you know, knows the research, is medically trained, can talk about these medications, can talk about behavioral options, I, I, th- I thought that was a pretty interesting take. Right. So it's the difference between behavior modification and then using prescription medications to alter the behavior of the animal, which is usually separation anxiety or other, like you said, aggressive, other aggressive behaviors. One thing that you wrote in your article, too, uh, you said that uh, 8% of dog owners and 6% of cat owners gave medications to their pets for anxieties. So that's like in the millions of pets that are taking these these drugs. What I had I looked up is I found I think there was like um, you know eight yeah as you mentioned eight percent and six percent and then a separate survey had shown that you know sixty million or so households own dogs etc. So if you kind of combine those statistics, it, it would seem to suggest that millions of American pets may have gotten psychiatric medications, which is which is a pretty big deal, right? And so the question is how what percentage of those animals who are getting medications right is it like Dr. Syracuse mentioned? Is it a really appropriate medical situation where the animal is suffering, the the owner is really you know, struggling with the the pet behavior modification might not be working. They come to a vet, they get the prescription, right? Like really through the right processes. Or are there other situations where you know the pet's tearing up stuff during the day because they're left at home for twenty hours a day and nobody's taking care of them, and now the owner you know wants them to be quiet and they try and just get some meds to give to them, right? And so I think most people would probably agree that there's a, a spectrum of need where on one end is a, an animal who's truly suffering and needs help, and on the other end is there could potentially be inappropriate prescriptions of it. And so I. I think, you know, looking across that spectrum and seeing how often is it happen, happening if, if millions of Americans are getting these medications is kind of an important question to look at. Have you seen a shift in veterinary medicine where they're transitioning to this more than the behavior modification methods? Yeah, so I so obviously so I'm in human medicine, right, as a psychiatrist, and that's where kind of some of this interest came from, is prescribing to humans. But I think one thing is that obviously, as these medic, a lot of these medications have been discovered only in the last couple of decades, and now it seems that possibly millions of American pets are taking these medications. Clearly, it's becoming a, a big issue in the field, and I think in in a, a good angle of it is at least that it looks like a lot of the veterinary medical field is taking it in a serious manner, right? Establishing board certification in behavioral medicine, establishing guidelines for how to prescribe these medications. And I I think that's an important thing to do. One of the big concerns I've seen is prescribing these medications to animals and then the worry that their owners might be abusing those drugs. So that's something I, I had seen quite a few news reports about is that, especially with the opioid crisis, I think there were some you know scary stories of owners you know hurting their pets or whatever and bringing them into different clinics and trying to get medications. I'm not sure how frequently this happens, but it, it's pretty scary, right? Is it, if pets are getting onto medications, uh, controlled substances that human patients often try to get, whether that be opioids, whether that be benzodiazepines, as I mentioned, like Xanax or Ativan, then that kind of 
interface is you know really tricky to navigate. And so I think as I, I put in the article, is a, a lot of veterinarians um, now are participating in what are called prescription drug monitoring programs. So in human medicine, we often, if we're prescribing patients some of these medications, we have to check. We can look in a database and see where they have gone to different providers to get those medications. And now a lot of veterinarians, it, it seems, are doing that as well. What do you know about using CBD oils to treat dogs? We live over here in California. Recreational medical marijuana is pretty prevalent. And you can buy the CBD, not you know the non-psychoactive elements of, of the marijuana plant, and a lot of people treat their animals with that. I think it's a, a fascinating question. Um, actually, it was in one of the earlier drafts of my article. I had actually written about CBD oil, and because I had come across quite a few websites touting using CBD oil, um, oil and um, cannabinoids and things like that to treat animals, I'm not sure of any. You know, I'm, I'm not aware personally of research um, in terms of CBD for treating pets. I, I recall seeing reports about after states had either legalized marijuana, more pets overdosing on marijuana. You know, eating it in the kitchen or whatever, and coming into emergency departments, which I think was a pretty big concern among veterinarians. But even though I practice in human medicine rather than veterinary medicine, my, my sense is that even in human medicine, there's a lot of uncertainties about the medical uses of marijuana. Um, there are some situations where it seems to be helpful, whether that be um, you know patients with end-stage cancer and appetite or you know certain chronic pain or things like that, whereas in a lot of other situations, we're, we're not sure what chronic use of that looks like or medical right. uses and how it might be helpful or harmful. And I, I suspect it's probably similar in veterinary medicine as well, where there's still a lot to learn about some of those things. Yeah, in a lot of cases, it's touted as really being beneficial to everything that all these other antidepressants are supposed to be helping with. Anxiety, pain, loss of appetite, people saying that the CBD oils work just as effectively with. So we see that in, in human medicine as well quite a bit, where I, I'll have patients who say that they, they you know, uh, smoke uh, marijuana and it, it helps them go to sleep or it helps with anxiety. And I think, again, this is kind of a, an, a large unknown that a lot of the medical community, especially with marijuana being, uh, you know, schedule one drug with a lot of restrictions on research, where a lot of people are, are waiting to find out. Dr. Nathaniel Morris, resident physician in psychiatry at Stanford School of Medicine. Thank you very much for joining us. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>